Welcome to Kingdom of Context. I'm Sean, and tonight we have a treat. We're going to have a, a wonderful pastor, Steve Martin, from the uh, from his church in Alabama. The It's a wonderful assembly of Yahweh of Northern Alabama, and he's going to be able to speak with us tonight on his discovery and journey of the book of First Enoch and some of the uh, interesting points that he's learned about it, as well as some of the criticisms he's he's received from even talking about it. And so I'm happy to have him on. But before we bring him in, um, I just want to say a big shout out and thank you to everyone that's in the live chat watching tonight, um, as well as all of our moderators that are here to, to make sure everybody uh, minds their minds their P's and Q's in the live chat. Nobody get rowdy. We don't need any wrestling matches in there. Um, we appreciate all the moderators as well as helping us with any of the spam bots that might show up. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for that, guys. And if also we put a poll up in the um, in the live chat. So you guys let us know what you think about the poll. If, after you already hit the thumbs up on this video, let us know in the poll. Do you find that First Enoch is inspired scripture? We, we got yes, no, haven't read it or need to study it out more. Drop your uh, your vote in the poll there and tell us what you think as you watch this show. And let us know in the comments if um, anything we talk about today maybe have changed your opinion by the end of the broadcast. So without further ado, I am happy to welcome on a brother in the faith here. This is our pastor, Steve Martin. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Sean. It's an honor to be with you. Truly it is. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really think this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, we've uh, been teaching the book of Enoch on our channel since we started. Um, I've done debates on, on the book of Enoch and, um, uh, I think it's a wonderful resource that tells us a lot about our Messiah. I think it would answer a lot of questions. People about it questions I had growing up, you know, that this book really helped me with. And so, but without further ado, we actually have a special surprise for everybody here. We have a special guest tonight that's going to join the conversation with Pastor Steve and I, and this is our brother from Ministers of the New Covenant, Matthew Jansen. Shalom, shalom, Welcome, everybody. Hey, I'm excited to be here, Brother Sean, one of my favorite brothers, Brother Sean, and one of my favorite new pastors out of North Alabama, Pastor Steve. I I saw him last week for the first time teaching on his first Enoch scripture, which I haven't come to a decision on yet. Um, but I knew I could just sense in my spirit. The scripture talks about the discerning of spirits being a spiritual gift. and I could sense that he was a brother in Yahweh and a good elder. I just knew it right from the start. I was impressed with how he handled criticism against opposition. Uh, some of the same opposition that I've had to deal with in the past. Um, and but I was also impressed with his teaching skills. And so I was telling him before the show started, Proverbs 27, verse 2 says, Let another man's lips praise thee and not thine own. And so I'm giving him some praise, honor where honor is due. Leviticus 19:32 says we're supposed to stand up before the gray-headed man. And that, that refers to the to the elder's gray beard. And so you see, Brother Steve's older than me and Sean. He's got the gray hair. <laughs> but I'm I'm blessed to be here, Sean. Thank you for allowing me to come on. I won't have a whole lot to add, but I did want to come on to express my gratitude for Elder Steve and also for you, Brother Sean, for all the work that you do in the yeah. ministry. And hopefully I can learn some things. I, I can I think I can stay on here tonight till till probably eight o'clock. So I'm very excited and I might chime in here and there. OK, yeah. Who knows? By the end of this broadcast, you may be voting in the poll that your thoughts are changed. Who knows? <laughs> Pastor Steve, I want to give you a few minutes uh, to go ahead and just let the audience know a little bit about you. You're welcome to tell us, um, you know, whatever you would like to share, whatever you think they need to know. The floor is yours. Well, thank you. I, 
you mentioned my gray hair. I let me begin by saying how excited I was to discover you two guys, and I didn't discover you till last week. But to uh, see young men who know far more than I do, and, I, and I'm just really getting into this, but to see young men who've latched onto this, uh, it thrills me to know that. Uh, our assembly to uh, see young people in it, to see children in it who have never been exposed to Christmas or Easter or any other pagan holiday, who've grown up in this, who love Sukkot, who love the Moedim. Mm. Uh, I'm just, I, I do appreciate uh, and I'm thrilled to see young people, young men uh, doing what you guys do. Thank y'all very much. <clears throat> I, uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I, started pastoring Southern Baptist churches when I was 20 years old. Um, I, for the several years there, I was always either studying. I was at Sanford University, a Southern Baptist school. So I was either always studying for a class or studying for a sermon. I, you know, preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I taught Sunday school classes. I taught training union classes. So I was always studying for what I was going to teach. And it wasn't until I graduated from Sanford University, literally, that I began to read the Bible for myself. Wow. And uh, that was life-changing. And it made life tough at times, but that was life-changing. And we moved uh, to Huntsville, Alabama 20 years ago. And when we started... Uh, our work here, we really started as a word of faith uh, work. I mm. came uh, here from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where I had been an associate pastor with a renowned uh, word of faith minister, uh, mm. a national evangelist. And so I moved here and started a word of faith church. But again, just reading the Bible, uh, we have just been what we call on a journey. Um, you know, discovering the Sabbath was the first thing we did. Well, actually discovering the name was the first thing we did. Mm. And then we began to discover the Sabbath. And from the Sabbath, we moved into the other Moedim. And then from that, we, we realized that, that Yeshua meant it when he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law. And so we began studying Torah and, mm. uh, we lost a lot of people, but we've gained some people, and uh, there's no way I'd ever go back. It has just been an exciting uh, journey for me um, into where we are now, and and we're still on a journey. Uh, we haven't yes. discovered it all yet. We're still on a journey. Isn't that an interesting perspective that people attend your ministry to look to you for teachings? And then because they trust in, you know, your evaluations of the scriptures and your teachings. But then uh, when you continue to dig deeper into the teachings, you get to a certain point where the people decide, you know what? Even though I've looked at this guy to help me understand the scriptures at this point, I think I, I think he's gone too far and I think I know better than him. So I'm going to. Yes, I'm gonna sir. get. I'm gonna get upset at this point. <laughs> I've, I've had them come into my office and literally tell me, "Hey, uh, 
God told me to submit myself to you. And, and mm -hmm. I'm here to help in any way I can. He told me I have to submit to you. And literally less than two weeks later, get upset and leave. So it, it, <laughs> it's astounding how that can happen. Mm. I, I guess, uh, Matthew, I'm sure you've experienced some of the similar concepts, right? Yeah, I have. Um, uh, Elder Steve, I grew up in Pentecostal church, so okay. I come from a long family line of ministers on the Mennonite brethren uh, practice of the faith to the Pentecostal practice of the faith, father and mother side. But my great uncle was a tent evangelist, what they would call a faith healer all over the southeast up in Canada. And um, yeah, my, my granddaddy, he, he set the tent up for him. He was a tent man. So um, my dad and my mom, they were uh, ministers of music, so they would travel and sing. And I, I've been in that lifestyle ever since I was in diapers. So that's all I've ever known. Right. And when I turned, um, I met my now wife, who I've been married to, praise Yahweh, for 25 years. But I met her back when I was 16, and she changed my whole life, um, uh, both in the natural and in the spiritual. And I started studying the Bible with her, her father. And her father was like one of the spearheads for uh, what some people sometimes derogatorily call the, the sacred name movement. But it's yeah. just people that recognize that, you know, the creator has a name, Yahweh. And I started studying with him and it was the name and the Sabbath and the feast days. And then I go back to my pastors and, you know, they would say one thing and it was based on emotion and experience. And I'd go to my dad-in-law, who's just a meek and mild man. And he would say, well, let's look at this scripture. And we right. go over that scripture. Let's look at this scripture. And um, I remember him going over Deuteronomy 13 with me, where if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams riseth up from among thee and showeth thee a sign or a wonder, and it come to pass, but he doesn't speak in the name Yahweh and he doesn't teach people to obey the law of Yahweh, don't follow that prophet because Yahweh's testing you to see whether you're going to love him or, or that prophet. And so uh, I eventually... Um, I eventually left that church and got married and now five children and five grandbabies later. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm the teaching pastor for our congregation. We've got a congregation here. It's nothing big, but we probably have, we probably have average about 50 people every Sabbath. Um, so, uh, I think we had a hundred and 130, 135 for Sukkot last year. Um, so that was a blessing, but, uh, Yahweh is good. He's good. Um, this isn't a popular yes, walk, but I'm not in a popularity contest, right? We just we just want to serve the Creator. Yes, sir. That's right. Well, uh, Pastor Steve, so I saw a video of you recently that Matthew pointed out to me where you were um, addressing some uh, some cheap shots taken at you from some fellow YouTubers, um, some of them who I've actually had on my channel, um, and. Uh, it's unfortunate that it went that route. So um, while I, I don't really um, have those gentlemen on my channel uh, anymore, um, I just, you know, as a YouTuber, I feel obliged to, to apologize for them. Uh, I'm, I really wish there was more, more respect and decorum that could be held when we have disagreements. But unfortunately, people, sometimes they get kind of petty. And um, but you would try to address that and just not simply, you know, the uh the cheap shots but more more along the lines of the academic argument that was being made and i thought you did a, a really well-rounded job on trying to present the research you had done on on how we got our bible and so this is where i've always 
you know, lovingly said on this channel that it feels like when you first become a believer, after you go over some of the basics of your faith, you should take a class on how we got our actual Bible throughout history. Because a lot of people just don't know it. And they think that the, the KJV is the, the only Bible that's ever been printed ever, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, uh, and while there's some, some benefits to that translation, uh, there's benefits to other translations, you know, and I think that it's, um, I, I always, people always ask me in the comments or in emails, you know, which translation do you recommend? And I say, as many as you can get your hands on, try to cross compare <laughs> and re cross reference all of them if you can, cause there's good and bad in all of them, you know? Right. And so a lot of people don't realize because they've stayed away from, they, they hear derogatory terms like you tried to address where they talk about these terms like apocryphal and deuterocanonical or even pseudepigraphal. And they never truly look up the definition. They just hear the word used quickly in a conversation to denigrate another piece of, of writing uh, that said, well, it wasn't canonized because it was pseudepigraphal. And you're like, okay, well, technically, if they attribute that work, well, that's what pseudepigraphal means. It's a work that's attributed to somebody else. So therefore, it's spurious authorship or uh, they think basically. But people, when you start to dig into how you really get your Bible, you start realizing, oh, wait a minute. Um, supposedly, Baruch wrote Jeremiah. But yet we called it Jeremiah. Is that pseudepigraphal? So Jude Baruch was the scribe and priest of Jeremiah. Um, and in the same way, you're like, so what? Are, how are we technically defining these? It becomes very malleable, very subjective in how they use these to, to create a derogatory sense uh, to scare people away from reading some of these other books. And so that's where I was just kind of like that um, stubborn guy where I was just like, well, look. I know people don't like this book, but that just kind of makes me want to read it all the more to see what exactly they don't like about it. You know, and I started reading the book of first Enoch and studying it many years ago, almost 10 years ago now. And I started to realize this, this book has got some nuggets in it that line up with the actual scriptures. Why is no one talking about this? You know, um, the song of Solomon, I, you know, I struggle with that book. Like I don't, <laughs> I, I, get you. I don't see i don't see messiah in that book i, I don't right. see prophecy that i can test in that book i don't see historical information about about israel that might come to to validate any other thing in the scriptures i, I see a highly poetic book uh describing love relationships and so yeah. you know but the book of first enoch my goodness right off the bat first page written to a remote and distant generation going through tribulation you know, that's, it's just a, makes this audacious claim right off the bat. Um, as everyone can see on screen, we've actually, I have on screen here, uh, our book of first Enoch that we've published and, and, uh, we have drew from green Pond creative has done wonderful artwork, uh, with this book, as you can see on the front cover there. And we tried to include some key elements from the book of first Enoch on the actual front cover, which is, it does describe the flood. It introduces Methuselah, Noah and Lamech. Um, it, it talks about the angels, the rebellious watchers, uh, that came down and took wives of whom they chose, just like Genesis talks about. Um, it talks about the Nephilim and describes who they are, that they were the children of this unholy union between, uh, rebellious watchers and human women. And, um, as well as this unique part at the bottom of this book at the front cover that a lot of people don't really, um, ask me about because I wonder if people have, you know, read to the back of the book, but towards some of the, towards some of the, uh, back chapters there. At the front cover of this book, I had Drew draw this moment here where Noah actually goes to visit Enoch at the garden. Mm. Mm. And this is where I've done extensive timelines on my channel showing the validity of the book of Enoch. And that because a lot of people immediately go to Hebrews 11.5 and they say, well, Enoch did not see death. 
and they, they don't look into the Greek of that word translated and match it up with Genesis 5.23 to so talk about Enoch being taken by God. And then you look into Jubilees and you, you see a greater ex, uh, explanation of Enoch was actually taken into the garden to be away from all the corruption and the gardeners that was happening outside. So he could actually literally as a scribe, because he's called a priest, he, he would scribe down the transgressions happening on the earth so that they would be properly condemned legally, according to the Torah for judgment of the flood. Hmm. So like all of it synchronistically comes together to paint this wonderful, coherent picture of God's consistent ways abiding by law and having to deal in righteous judgment against those who transgressed his law. Enoch was a massive part of that. Um, and so I've even done other videos on my channel where we try to show the timeline of lifespans from Genesis five, from Jubilees, as well as, from what the book of first Enoch shares with us that Noah was actually still a young man and still alive or had already been born at the tail end of Enoch's life. And so we can talk about this. I'm just throwing out a whole bunch of ideas to give us some fun stuff to talk about. Right. Um, there is a unique, uh, I'm going to put this on screen real quick because this is a unique little chart that I tried to put together um, to show us real quick here. One second here, if I can find what screen it's on so I can share it. I don't know why it's not showing it. Um, here, let me just do this then. I don't know why that's not popping up. Why is it not popping up? Let me try this. All right, can y'all see that? Yeah. This is a little timeline chart I put together just to show when we add in what Jubilees tells us about Enoch and how he was taken back into the garden. And that's where he spent the 300 years with the angels. Mm -hmm. You see an overlap that he didn't die at 365. That was when he was removed from being around the rest of mankind and was taken into the garden to spend time with the angels. You start to see there's a 200 year overlap. Noah's already been born. Now Enoch did live a lot less years according to, well, Abel unfortunately got the really short end of the stick. He's going to be excited for the resurrection. But mm. um, but Enoch did live less than everybody else. But according to putting all these pieces together between Enoch and Jubilees, he actually lived 665 years, and there was a 200-year overlap with Noah already being born. So that's how, in the book of Enoch, Noah can run up to the garden and ask Grandfather Enoch, hey, I had this horrific vision of the heaven being broken off and water coming down in and everything flooding and all the land upheaving and falling down, the mountains falling down and the, and the valleys being raised up. So he can have that horrific vision that scared him to death. And that's why he runs to the garden to actually talk to great granddaddy Enoch and ask him what's going on. And so because they're, they were alive at the same time, it's just he was not around. He was inside the garden being protected so he could actually write down the condemnation of the corrupt and wicked earth to, to bring legal justifiable judgment for the flood. So this is, um, I, I'm fascinated by the wealth of historical detail that the book of first Enoch gives us about the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world. I think it's an amazing thing. I think chapter 10 in the, in the Enoch Lawrence translation, he actually ascribes to the promise of people at the resurrection, completing their Sabbaths in peace and rest, talking about the eternal Sabbath nature um, in chapter. I think it's, um, I think it's 84. You have the moment where Enoch is calling, uh, or excuse me, Methuselah is calling Lamech and all of his children. Uh, so that he can teach them the laws of God pertaining to, no, excuse me, it's Enoch, it's calling Methuselah and the rest of his children 
so that he can teach them everything he learned about the moon and stars and the and the sun and how they move in the heaven pertaining to the appointed times mm. because the feasts of God are eternal. So I mm. think it's a fascinating, fascinating book. There's so much in there to tie, to dive in and talk about. And, um, but I don't want to, I don't want to talk the whole time. Uh, Pastor Steve, would you like to share with the audience a little bit about some of your, you know, what you, how you came to understand this book was something that should be studied and, uh, and what your thoughts are on. I don't remember exactly how far back it was. I think it was six, maybe eight years ago that I became familiar with Book Thing Up. So I ordered a copy and, uh, and I read it. Um, in reading it, the, the, the first thing that, that uh, stuck out to me was uh, finally an, an understanding of where giants came from that was just uh that stood out to me okay here's a guy explaining to me where these nephilim came from hmm. and then so all of genesis 6 then begins to make sense to me it's a you know a behind the scene look at, at what genesis 6 just tells us in two or three verses um and so if you just have genesis 6 that's the reason that professors can can come up with some strange theology about who the the Beneha Elohim are, the sons of God are, and who, you know, what they're doing with the daughters of men. But if you take Genesis, uh, excuse me, Enoch 6 and apply it, then you see exactly what did happen and it begins to make sense. Um, that those are the first things that stood out to me, but the the most forceful thing that stood out to me as I read the book of Enoch was <clears throat> for the first time in my life. And, and, you know, I'd been in church all my life, been preaching for a long time for the first time in my life, I understood where demons came from, mm. what a demon is, what, what they do, where they came from. And, um, that's significant information. And the, conspiracy theory is okay i can see now why the devil why satan why his kingdom would not want this book to be known because it pulls the veil back lets you see him lets you understand demons lets you understand um you know how believers what believers can and can't do concerning them as you you go back and you read the gospels um, to me, it never made sense that, you know, a demon would say to the Messiah, have you come to torment us before our time? Mm. But, well, what does that mean? Mm. Uh, you know, one of, you know, I, um, Pastor Steve, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, we're getting yeah. quite a few comments in the live chat saying they can't hear you. Is there a way to maybe scoot your mic a little closer to you? Yes, sir. That is not a problem I've ever had before. So it's find out if that's any better. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be accommodating to the crowd. I can hear you just fine in the studio, but okay. they're saying they can't hear you. All right. So yeah, I you know, I told you I've never done anything like this before. So it's a little <laughs> Okay. It's okay. That's uh, okay. Um you were talking about the the, the uh, pulling the veil back on Satan there. Yeah, you know, it 
in Luke, the, uh, uh, the Gadarene demoniac, when, when he's dealing with them, they say, I adjure you by God that you torment me not. And so my understanding of that word adjure is, you know, to set a limit on, to put a fence around. Hmm. Um, so that this demon or demons are saying to the Messiah, we're putting a fence around you, putting a limit on you as to what you can do. And we're doing it by God that you do not torment us. And then you go back in Matthew and look where it says before our time. Well, when you read the book of Enoch, all of that makes perfect sense because um, Enoch explains, oh, where's it at? But he explains that, that they would not be judged until the end of days. He mm. says they're going to destroy. They're going to do all kind of uh, horrible works in the earth, but they're not going to be judged till the end of days. And they are, they are quoting that passage out of Enoch when they're talking to the Messiah uh, mm. when he confronts them. So those kind of things just begin to, shake my foundation. And I think shake my foundation may not be the right word, bring understanding to me uh, yeah. that I didn't have before. Uh, and then you can't read the book of Enoch very long before you begin to um, <laughs> be confronted with a biblical cosmology. Uh, yeah. And when you start seeing the sun and the moon moving through portals, uh, you know, the firmament, the ends of the heaven and those kind of things being discussed. Um, those things caused me to take the book of Enoch and kind of set it aside for a while because we were discovering so many things on our journey that were challenging for us, you know, keeping Passover, keeping unleavened bread, keeping first fruits, keeping uh, you know, um, Pentecost and those things. Um, there were so many things that, that the Holy spirit was showing us that dealing with, uh, a biblical cosmology was not something that, that I felt like we needed to do. And I wasn't even sure that I could do, um, uh, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't talk about it to anybody, but I saw it in the book of Enoch. Uh, it's the book of Enoch not Rob Skiba <laughs> that revealed to me biblical <laughs> cosmology. Um, but then years later, when I did discover Rob Skiba on YouTube and heard him talking about NASA and about biblical, biblical cosmology, it made me go back to the book of Enoch and say, Hey, I've, I've heard this stuff before that he's talking about. And I went back to the book of Enoch and went to comparing it with Genesis one and other passages as well, but, um, that firmament word is a hard word to get around. Say again, that firmament word is a hard word to get around. Yes, sir. <laughs> when you're willing to look at it and let it say what it said, let the Bible say what it says It's hard to get around it. Um, and so, you know, I, I began then to do a little bit more research, but it was only, a few months ago, a couple of three months ago that, um, I shared with our assembly, I, 
it's not a thus saith Yahweh, but I shared with them that I have a, a strong impression that we're to study the book of Enoch. Mm. And the way we've done everything we've done for 20 years here is I don't go study something, learn everything I can about it, and then come back and teach it to them. We study it together. <laughs> and so mm. I take the book of Enoch and, um, we started in chapter one and we're going to go through it and I'm learning as I go. Uh, even though I, um, uh, am convinced that it's something we need to be studying. I cannot tell you that I've done extensive study on it. I am doing that now mm -hmm. as we go. And you brought it up. What I found myself doing as we started that is, uh, you can't just study it every now and then you, you're confronted. And so you got to back up and explain to people why you are going to study it. You got to explain to them why you consider it to be important, why you consider it to be scripture, why you consider it to be a holy writing, why you consider it to be very important. And so, you know, we'll do a few and then we'll have to back up and, and deal with people, whether it's on, uh, in our assembly or on Facebook, on YouTube, whoever it is, uh, you know, they bring up valid points. So we have to go back and confirm for them and for ourselves. Um, these are holy writings. Um, and I was, uh, I think it's a divine appointment that I met you guys and mm -hmm. to, uh, we'll go back and to be able to look at the resources that you have available, Sean, uh, I ordered your mm -hmm. book on Enoch. <laughs> I'm looking forward to using it in our study here. Uh, but we I sent you the I sent you that PDF. Did you get that PDF? I did get that PDF. Okay. Yes, sir. So you can you can peruse it before you get the physical hard copy and yes, when you sir. have time, but or just share it as a resource to whomever you'd like. Yes, sir. Well, I, I not how, not how far have you ramble there. I just wanted. Um, I'm excited about reading the Book of Enoch. Um, everything I look at tells me it is Holy Scripture. Um, mm. it has enriched my life. And, uh, I think our assembly would say the same thing. Wow. How many chapters have you made it through, uh, brother Steve in your teaching there with the assembly? I think we're up to chapter 10. Um, was just and you're going verse by verse, right? Pretty much verse by verse or at least chapter by chapter. But yes, we will read the entire thing, go verse by verse and make comments as we go. Okay. Uh, but uh and real quick i'm putting this on screen to add to what yeah. you just said pastor steve you just talked about the unclean spirits the origins of the nephilim and you, you just talked about i was talking about yes yeah, so that's it this is the one and it actually relates to uh what you mentioned about biblical cosmology as well and this is one of the finer points a lot of people miss is that you know in chapter 15 right before this first uh verse here in chapter 16 where it talks about the days of the slaughter and destruction and the death of the giants from whom, from the souls of whose flesh, the spirits having gone forth shall destroy without incurring judgment. Therefore they shall destroy until the day of consummation, the great judgment in which the age shall be consummated over the watchers and the godless. Truly it shall be wholly consummated. Now that, that terminology of the age being consummated, we also see in the book of second Ezra and the book of Baruch, the apocalypse of Baruch books that were also used to be in our, in our American canon that are no longer published Traditionally, they're still in the, the Catholic Bibles. So um, that's that's there's, you know, continuity there of 
eschatology and and even the verbiage describing that eschatology. And so it does blatantly tell you this is why they're still out roaming around, oppressing, attacking, tormenting, and trying to possess these. Their time, uh, their appointed time. Yes, it's they do, and that's like just like you said so accurately um, in Matthew, and in, and that's why they would plead with Yeshua. Please do not torment us before, you know, before the appointed time. So, and I think it's fascinating because it tells you in chapter 15 that the angels whom the, the rebellious angels who took wives and produced these unclean spirits, these giants. um, Now they were giants when they had a body, but when they lost their body, they then become these unclean spirits that run around. Evil spirits, right. And the reason for that is because of the creation model. So th- we don't live on a ball in space. These things can't just go to Alpha Centauri or the Andromeda Galaxy, or they have to stay here. They're, they're, this is what First Day Night 15 talks about, is they have to be here because they were born upon the earth, and so upon the earth they shall stay until their judgment. Just like the angels in heaven were created in heaven, and that's why they were reprimanded for trying to come cohabitate on earth it's not it's not appointed for them to do that so in the same way it's not appointed for these unclean spirits to go to heaven or to go anywhere else they were born upon the earth and they have to stick around and so this is what's so fascinating about being in this enclosed firmament i wonder i almost wonder if it's some sort of barrier that they they themselves can't actually cross even if they had the technology or the ability to because they're literally trapped here (laughs) and so this is why use they're bound here yes sir they they absolutely are not just by divine judgment or decree of yahweh but also just by the physics of how the creation model was made they cannot leave they can only be destroyed at this point this is why it says they were an abomination that was created for unrighteousness and so at this point it it becomes truly you know it's it's kind of like that weird that old saying like you know the unclean spirits they they are repelled by righteousness and they are truly they like they showed with yeshua they do not have authority over you if you're walking in righteousness. And so they're, they actually fear mankind, which is why they have to implore trickery and deception in order for us to give power to them. Because they're stuck here with us until the day of consummation when they're judged and destroyed, which First Enoch chapter 52 through 56 talk, talks about later. Um, and so I think it's a fascinating concept that just shows you all this propaganda that NASA shows you, trying to, trying to sell people in this dream of leaving, of leaving Earth and going to someplace else, and that's their overall mission. They even glorify it with, "Oh well, it's you know, it's such a moral virtue that we should go explore the heavens so we might learn the answers of the universe and of creation." And you're like, "That's I got all the answers in my my heavenly Father's word He gave to me through trusted prophets. Yes. I'm good. I don't I don't need to go explore outside of this enclosure. My enclosure is beautiful. It's where I was made. It's what I get to inherit. The meek inherit the earth. So these guys are trying to steal my inheritance." <laughs> so this is for a long time is that the devil doesn't get the earth it's ours we it's ours we get to inherit it they're the ones that the wicked are the ones that have to leave the unrighteous are the ones that are taken out uh so amen yes amen yeah it's all it's all connected um and i i think it's a beautiful book in case anyone's never read it you know that's listening out there um it, it's it starts off just right off the bat preaching the day of the Lord, which I think is amazing. Preaching the coming of the most high on earth where he takes out the godless and the resurrected happen. 
it's an amazing moment. It's an amazing just trying to get your attention right off the bat. And if that wasn't enough for you, then he's going to introduce Rebellious Angels. He's going to do a flashback to the past and re- introduce Rebellious Angels and their, their unholy offspring that tormented and oppressed and attacked and then turned on mankind towards cannibalistic lawlessness, um, even on the animals. And so um, it, there's just so much introduced there that modern scholars try to hand wave dismiss and they just say, well, that's just, you know, aspects of Hellenization because it was written because the earliest copy we found of, of first Enoch is in the third century BC. So that's just a second temple Hellenized text that, that took over a lot of ideas from ancient Greek mythology. And I'm like, not, that's not Jude didn't think so when he was quoting from it. You know what I mean? He, he thought it was truly his ancestors of the Hebrew uh, lineage that, that had written this and that it was valid scripture. We also try to remind people there are some thematic concepts in the book of First Enoch that are not mentioned in the Old Testament, but Yeshua is teaching on these concepts um, that you don't find anywhere else than, than just in the book of Enoch. And that is from chapter 15 when those rebellious watchers are being um, reprimanded through Enoch and they're being told, you were not appointed wives. You were created in heaven, living the holy life. You were not appointed wives, but you came down here and took wives and started having your own little families. And that's that you're obeying your commission as a created angel. You're supposed to be a, a ministering servant that comes to help those inheriting salvation. And then you go back home. You know what I mean? Like you, your home is up there. You're not supposed to come down here. And, and of course, once they were down here having rebellious offspring, giant babies, they also were teaching men lawlessness of all other forms. So Yeshua in Matthew 22 has to remind the Pharisees that at the resurrection, that will not be given in marriage uh, or taken in marriage will be like the angels in heaven. And this is a concept that is only found verbalized through the prophet in first Enoch. And, um, and that, that just, you know, is an aside to the wealth of historical evidence that we have that this manuscript was uh, widely circulated in the days of Yeshua, as well as before. Um, many times when, when, like I said, that statement earlier about the, the earliest dated manuscript by modern scholars for the book of Enoch is in the third century BC, the average person, they think, oh, well, see, that means it was written in the third century BC. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize that's just the earliest dated manuscript. So the way the way that they passed on information, they had a scribe who copied things, who made physical copies. You know, they didn't have printing presses, so they had a physical right. scribe. And th- so that's just the oldest copy that we found that they've dated it back to then. But um, that means that doesn't assume that it was written in the third century BC. So I'm, I'm actually going to put this on screen real quick because this is uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with how the Book of Enoch is actually constructed. Um, and I'm going to make this real brief just for the sake of everybody. Um, this is the scrolls that compile and create the book of First Enoch. So you've got the Apocalypse of Weeks. That's a portion of it. You've got the fragments of the book of Noah. That's a portion of it. you got the Dream Visions. you got the Holy Book of the Luminaries. That describes the, the creation model as well as the sun, moon, stars. And that what I love are the gates that let wind inside the creation model that we live in. There's 12 gates that are guarded by angels. We actually, uh, Pastor Steve, I actually do um, a show called Uncommon Ground that's all about biblical cosmology. And I do that with another brother called Wes Blaze on his channel. And we uh, we emphatically go over all the details of the creation model through scripture. And then we even touch on some modern science and observation as well. And it's fascinating because when I was doing research on a Russian observatory in Antarctica, the, the Russian um, weather specialist who constantly uh, takes weather, weather readings and uh, sends them back to the mainland, he said those weather readings are what all weather 
services on all countries use to get accurate weather is from him supposedly at the bottom of the ball. But if this is a flat circle of earth enclosed by a ferment, he's at the outer rim because he's next to those gates that, sh that Enoch tells us controls the wind and weather patterns. So of course that's where you get the most accurate readings on what's about to happen. And, uh, so it's very fascinating. Um, the book of Enoch talks about all kinds of stuff. You also have the parables, um, and then the untitled portion, which I believe is the first five chapters, but supposedly six scrolls as a whole, but they're all fragmented. And those are what's been compiled to create what we call first Enoch today. We here at Kingman Context, we don't give any validity to second and third Enoch for, for many reasons. The theology taught within it doesn't line up as well as the manuscript history. There's, there's no verifiable chain of custody. But we do have an incredibly long-standing verifiable chain of custody that's available. Um, and I'm going to put this for us to look at real quick. This is right here. You guys can see that. So is it showing? There, uh, there, did it show? One second here. Okay. Uh, that's That doesn't show. One second. Here it is. Sorry, it's uh, going slow. I don't know why it's going slow. All right. So as you guys can see on screen here, we have copies of the first Enoch in Paleo-Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, all found before the first century AD on the left-hand side of this chart. And those were all available. But then around the first century, only the Greek manuscripts and the Gia's manuscripts were left available for approximately 2,000 years. So they're older than that. I'm just saying what's available for historians to study and have. And I actually have a, another part of this little video I'm highlighting here where I show the people that have had it, uh, like George Sincellus in the ninth century AD, who was a historian, used the book of First Enoch to create a, uh, a an accurate history of the world at that point. So it's a fascinating um study when you start digging deep into the manuscripts that have always been available. Now, the Paleo-Hebrew, that did not come available again until the Dead Sea Scroll findings in the 20th century. The Aramaic manuscripts, that did not become available again until the 20th century findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We always had the Greek and then the Latin showed up a little bit more in the 19th century and then were found in addition to the other manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then the Gias in Ethiopia, they've always had a, a copy of Enoch in their canon. So they've just held on to it almost this entire time. But the Gias translation was made off of the Greek around the first, B, first century BC to second century BC. It's an estimated timeline when they had their translation. But all I'm trying to show with this is that we've had multiple copies of the Book of Enoch in multiple languages throughout history that have come and gone that are available to the public. But since the Dead Sea Scroll findings, we currently have fragments of the Paleo-Hebrew, the Aramaic copies we do have, but we can't have access to them. They've been hidden away. We just have small fragments of them. The Greek copies we still have, the Latin and the Gias copies we still have. And it's to me, that's that's amazing because... Enoch actually makes a claim in the book of first Enoch. He actually makes his own claim. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, that's not it. One second. Let me, uh, let me pull up this real quick for us to look at this, but he makes a claim. I think it's in chapter 108 of his book that his book would be written and translated in different languages. And, um, 
Let me pull this up for people to see it real quick. I try, I try to have a whole bunch of slides ready to show, but um, it was way too many to have ready. Thanks for your patience, gentlemen. Um, no, no problem. It's I, interesting I, you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, their scholarship will tell you that there's been significant changes in understanding um, recognized canonical texts based on the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, I see exactly what you're saying. Um, people say, well, you know, why would Yahweh allow so much time to, to lapse until these things were discovered? Well, you could say that for the understanding that the Dead Sea Scrolls based on texts in the Torah. Um, Dr. Michael Heiser, may, may rest in peace, he recently passed away. Um, but he, he did extensive uh, study on Deuteronomy 32 and translated um, uh, a text there and I think 32 and 8 as uh, sons of God instead of sons of Israel. And he based that reading on the Dead Sea Scroll manuscript of Deuteronomy 32. Right. So he changed. Yeah, he changed an understanding and scholarship. And if you ask any, uh, pretty much any any scholar in the field, they'll, they'll tell you that yeah, Heiser's more than likely he's correct that, but based on the the Dead Sea Scroll reading. So they've they've kind of chunked the Masoretic text reading there, Deuteronomy thirty two verse eight. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are extremely significant. They are, and that's yes. that's what here in, in Enoch one hundred four, as you see in verse eleven. Enoch says, but when they write down truthfully all my words in their languages and do not change or diminish nothing from my words, but write them all down truthfully at all that I first testify concerning them. Then I know another mystery that books will be given to the righteous and the wise to become a cause of joy and uprightness and much wisdom. And to them shall the books be given and they shall believe in them and rejoice over them. And then all shall the righteous who have learned therefrom all the paths of uprightness be recompensed. So if I take this seriously, this is a prophecy from before the Tower of Babel. And he's talking about books being written in different languages. Mm. <laughs> no, then this is this is from your edition of the, the first Enoch and with a study guide, Brother Sean. This is, yeah, I just put it up real quick. It's chapter 104 in the Charles in the Orange Charles translation. I'm gonna have to order one of those. I haven't yet. Um so you're so the translation you used was the RH Charles. It is. It's a, it's a, I modernized some of the language. Uh-huh. If that makes any sense. I got, uh, because no, I understand. There was, there was a lot of there froms and hither twos and, but I, I, moder <laughs> I modern, modernized a little bit of it. Yeah. Like the new King James version. <laughs> right. That's, that's right. No, I got you. No, I got you perfectly. Yeah. Perfectly. So yeah, that's very interesting. I've already made several notes. Um, uh, Pastor Steve, what was, what was like, maybe if you could dwindle it down to like your your main or main two um, uh, points or arguments that made you, that put you over the edge on saying that First Enoch was, was Holy Scripture. Jude, of course, quoting him verbatim. Uh, Peter referring to him. Uh, you know, Scripture being canonized by scribes and Pharisees um, whom Peter and Jude would have been in opposition to. So uh, I'm more willing to take what they consider scripture than I am what those who were canonizing scripture took as scripture. Mm. So that was uh, powerful to me. And then <clears throat> Sean mentioned it a while ago, 
Matthew 22, where when he talks about, you know, in heaven, you know, the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Mm -hmm. He began that reprimand to them by saying, uh, you do err because you know not the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Well, there's nowhere they could have found that information. Nowhere. Mm -hmm. Except in the book of Enoch. So he's confronting them about no, not knowing scripture. And the scripture mm -hmm. he's referring to is in the book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. So those three things uh, made me to begin to consider this to be Holy Scripture. Very good, brother. Very good. I wanted to ask that. I, I hate to have to leave the discussion. Um, I do have something to do between the hours of 8 and 9 tonight. And so I wanted to ask that. I will make sure to watch the rest of this um, at a later time. But, Brother Sean, thank you for having me on. I'm going to let you two brothers finish out the discussion. I love you both. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Love you. What an honor to meet you and talk with you, Matthew. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, we bless you. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. You got it. All right. Um, so yeah, that I, it's such a, a wonderful testament. And this is where I know people haven't, especially in the in tour observant communities, um, people that have in the past couple decades, they've woken up to the relevance of, you know, the full applicability of the law, and uh, and or at least you know everything that would apply to you um, right. still applies to you, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so it's it's become a wonderful wonderful realization in that own right but then to see that kind of language being used in the book of first enoch and, and it, it baffles me that that people that have woken up to the the applicability of the fullness of the instructions for us would then read the book of enoch and somehow think it differs from any of that because it's just reinforcing it at every level and you know another quick example is in enoch 108 verse 1 where it talks about um this right here but it says very plainly uh Another book which Enoch wrote for his son Methuselah and for those who will come after him and keep the law in the last days. I mean, this is <laughs> to me that's pretty powerful. Uh, we we talked about that actually yes, yesterday in our assembly that um, the book of Enoch is instruction for those who have turned back to Torah in the last days, and uh, it, it's a vital. It's vital instruction for us to know how to navigate through these last days. So, yes, sir, I agree. You not want to wait. It's very powerful. Well, I have a special treat for us. Um, this is, I'm going to play this little video for us. This is a, a someone that I did a, a whole show on. Um, I don't think I sent you the link to this video, but for everyone watching, the link to the full presentation of this video that I reviewed is in the video description below, right below. Our, our pastor Steve links to his YouTube channel. So go make sure you subscribe to his YouTube channel as well. But um, this is an old video I did about two and a half years ago where I reviewed a professor from, from Israel. Her name is Rachel Eliar, and she's a, a emeritus professor over the Dead Sea Scrolls. And she had made a very controversial speech uh, to, uh, to everyone at this university, uh, many of which were raised in Judaism, because in her speech, she actually reveals from her findings of, of Enoch and Jubilees that she's got some questions. Why was she taught certain things growing up that these books uh, validated by archaeology? They 
they clearly say something different. And then so she starts researching and I'm just going to show us a small clip of three or four minutes here. But I did like an hour long review of her speech. And I would highly recommend everyone go to that link after this broadcast and watch the full breakdown of her speech because she goes over the calendar that Enoch explains and how and, and why she feels that early first century Judaism rejected Enoch due to, to many, many different factors. And one of them was based on the calendar. Um, but I, I will posit after we listen to the short clip that it's all because of Yeshua, all of it, because Enoch proves Yeshua like a thousand percent. And this is to me, this is why pastor, I always um, make the statement on my channel, my videos where I say, if we start teaching what the new Testament actually says and, and don't discount the, the old Testament, right? We, we harmonize them because we realize the law is still applicable because we see the disciples in Jesus teaching the new teaching the Torah everywhere in the New Testament. I mean, it's just replete and abundant. It's amazing. And if we if we teach it as it's spoken and don't try to reinterpret it, but just teach teach it as they were all falling Torah, they were preaching Torah. The Torah is eternal, so it's going to give us an amazing perspective on why he was reprimanding the Pharisees for their unrighteousness for their hypocritical ways for being whitewashed tombs you know and and it makes a lot more sense for him to say your your right behavior your righteousness must be better than the pharisees because they didn't have very good torah following behavior you know and and then it would make perfect sense why everyone was getting saved in droves because everyone who had a proper mindset to understand the torah is applicable Yeshua is the walking embodiment of the torah he's now your high priest in heaven that's a torah concept and yeah. he mediates atonement for you. This is how he has the authority to resurrect you to eternal life. This is how you can be assured, according to the outline and the rules that, that Yahweh laid down in the Old Testament, this is how you can be 100% assured your salvation is guaranteed. Put your faith in Yeshua. It, and it, it, it's a story greater than any of the false gods all around them, all the Zeus and Baal worshipers around them. They don't have that promise, right? So right. no wonder people were coming to, to faith. Even people of the Jews were coming to faith in mass. The Pharisees had to suppress the information. So I'm going to show a short clip where this professor is talking about that suppression in the first century. Let me just pull it up real quick. It's pretty amazing. And have you ever uh, seen this present, heard about this presentation before? No, sir. Okay. Uh, well, it, like I said, you'll you'll be tickled pink when you uh, watch the full presentation later, because this lady she says some amazing things, and I just always wondered if she got fired from her position or got some backlash after this presentation, because she she pretty much debunks Judaism in one presentation. It's pretty amazing. Professor Rachel Alior, Israeli professor of Jewish philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Jerusalem. Her principal subject of research has been the history of early Jewish mysticism. And Ms. Elior is the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Jewish Mystical Thought at the Hebrew University, where she has taught since 1978. Currently, she's the head of the Department of Jewish Thought, and she earned her PhD, Summa Cum Laude, 1976. Her specialties are early Jewish mysticism, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hakala literature, Messianism, Sabbateanism, Hasidism, Kabad, Frankism, and the role of women in Jewish culture. So, guys, the reason why I'm I'm kind of highlighting to show you who we're talking about. This lady is respected by the people that she's actually presenting information in this lecture that rubs against everything they teach. I don't know what become of this lady after this presentation, as far as you know, if she received some sort of academic backlash because of this, but all I know is that. 
she's presenting from her perspective and this is why i'm presenting it i could tell all this information she's telling you guys i've already told you on this channel for two and a half years except i'm doing it through scripture she's going to tell you from the dead sea scrolls which many of you guys know there's lots of scripture that was buried with the dead sea scrolls and she's going to talk about those books and she's going to talk about what's in those books and why she's kind of confused she doesn't quite understand why the the major themes of the things in the the dead sea scrolls that she's reading about have been ignored dismissed and literally censored according to her own words by rabbinic judaism for two thousand years in the rabbinical literature that had been written and edited and composed in the first few centuries of the common era it was put into writing later, but it had been discussed and oralized and edited in the first few centuries of the common era. There are no angels. I'm talking on the Mishnah and the Tosefta. There are no angels. There is no paradise. There is no Enoch. There is no calendar. All what was so important for the priests is utterly unknown in the early stratas of rabbinic Judaism. I just want to repeat this in case you can't understand her thick accent, okay? I'm, I'm sorry for stopping it too much, but I want to make sure everyone's following along. What she just said is that in that first century, early stractas or, or rabbinic Judaism writings, all this stuff of great importance that she's seeing within the Dead Sea Scrolls, talking about the priesthood and angels carrying out the law in heaven and how she's going to explain here in a little bit how the Torah was supposed to be passed on by the priesthood and how important it was. All those concepts were ignored and they're gone in early rabbinic Judaism in the Mishnahs. The final 24 books of the canon were the closure of creative sacred writings or creative holy scriptures according to the rabbis. They did not allow any continuity of writing. Now, there were many books which were not chosen to be within the biblical canon, such as the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Book of the Twelve Tribes, the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, the Temple Scroll. All of them are sacred writings. With no exception, all of them are talking about... Do you guys hear what she just said? Enoch, Jubilees, Book of the Twelve Tribes, that's the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, which were also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. She says... All of them are sacred writings. But listen to what she says next. She tells you why they weren't put in the Jewish Bible. Heavenly issues, angelic issues, divine commandment, halachic things. However, they were excluded. Why would they exclude, be excluded? Because the rabbis, so to say, had decided that any book which is focusing on priests and angels and has any allusion to this 364 days calendar, would be deemed as Sfarim Chitzonim, which means the books which are left outside, the external books. We call them in English pseudoepigrapha or apocrypha, but in Hebrew it's more precise. It's the books which were left outside. They were left outside by Rabbi Akiva, who is telling us in the Sanhedrin, anyone who will read in the external books, those which were left outside, has no share in the world to come. That's a very strong act of censorship. Yes, indeed. It's a very strong act of censorship. Now, there's a lot more to that. Please go see the video description link uh, to see the full the full breakdown of her speech. But um, she clearly, she blatantly tells you 
first century rabbinic Pharisees of Judaism, they removed Enoch Jubilee's Testament 12 patriarchs, as well as the uh, a couple other things found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and told people you're not going to get salvation if you read those books. So stop reading them. Yeah, they didn't just set them outside of the canon. They left a threat there if you dared to even read them. It, it's not like they're setting them out there and saying, well, these are valuable, but we're not going to put them in. They're saying, avoid them. And that's, as you just said, that's strong censorship there. So why would, why would you know, our modern-day seminaries in the United States who believe in Christ, why would they have that same narrative? to? Because uh, I've heard it from pastors and preachers telling you, oh, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get spiritually misled into deception. You start reading First Enoch. I wouldn't even read it. It's abomination. Like, I've had them tell me that. Right. Why? What? Why? <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going, like, have you read it? Because I'm pretty sure. Now, what are what are some common objections, sir, that you think that you've heard when people tell you why you shouldn't read it? I don't know that anybody ever gives me a good reason. They just, um, you know, in the video we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they they just say, well, it's not part of the canon. Um, you know, people. There are some who say, well, you can read it but just for historical data and information, but don't count it as inspired. But um, I've never been given a good reason why we shouldn't. I think they're just parroting what somebody else told them. And, and they are, uh, somebody warned them not to read it and somebody warned them not to read it. And so people are just repeating that. Whereas if they had ever just go read it for themselves, they would see that it lines up with Torah. It meets the Deuteronomy 13 test. It, uh, you, you see it given information that I think is vital to understanding the rest of what is written in Holy Scripture. So uh, I've never been given a good reason for not reading it. Uh, I just have been warned not to. <laughs> now, some of the objections I've heard brought up is, I think it's chapter 20 of First Enoch. It talks, I think it's verse 9, talks about the uh, the seven archangels and mentions one named Phanuel. And they say, well, it says that Phanuel was set over the repentance of man. That's Jesus's job. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All the angels are priests. We even see that in the canon we still have today. It's Hebrew. It's right. Psalm 104. They're ministry and servants of flame and fire. It's Hebrews 114. These or minutes in the same context of Hebrews 1, where it just told you that Yeshua has been given a priestly office, a name greater than even the angels. That means they have one too. <laughs> so right. this, is, this is the concept of that authority given to that priesthood. Same thing in Revelation 5, when you see the angels bringing forward the prayers of incense to the Father, which are the prayers yeah. of the saints. Like these are angelic duties of priesthood. This is why if we understand the Torah, we start recognizing priestly duties, right? So right. it for having an angel who set over the repentance of men, well, so was all the priests of ancient Israel. As Malachi 2 tells us, they were supposed to have true instruction on their lip, that they would lead people back from iniquity. This is uh, Malachi 2, I think, verse 4 or 5. So this is uh, this is the job of a priest. This is a trusted ministering servant of Yahweh. He, he ordains them. They have to have the right heart for it. They have to prove themselves. And they're trusted not just as a messenger of his word, but also to teach people his eternal law. And the eternal way to behave in righteousness and to be set apart. And that's the part that I think people just kind of glaze over. They think, it's like, well, what do you think angels are? And and pastor, in modern day, I've even run into, uh, I, I had a rabbi on my channel one time, um, and he was trying to tell me that, yeah, you know, angels, yeah, they're not really... They're not really a thing. They're not really here and there. They don't really come and go. And that's just all God in the Old Testament wow. doing stuff. 
And I didn't realize that was a specific leaning of, of ancient. Um, uh, we see that actually in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 24 talks about the, the uh, Sadducees. They held the belief that there are no spirits, there are no angels, there is no resurrection. Right. And so these are long-standing theological and philosophical arguments uh, from certain sects of ancient, of ancient Israel that, by the way, all of those sects rejected Christ. <laughs> it's like, exactly. so it, to me, it, it blows my mind how we're still in, in confusion. I'm not saying people are doing this intentionally. I just think these bad arguments get carried over through time because people don't do their due diligence to really study. And, and many of that is they don't study the, the front of our Bible that we do have today, which gives you the full breakdown of the priestly duties and the importance of that role as one of the leaders of Israel who was supposed to teach righteousness to to the people. And we have that in our wonderful Messiah Yeshua now, but he has angels under his, under his command now, you know, and this is the part I think people miss. Um, Like you just heard the the professor Eliar talking about how in the first century missionary writings, it's, it's uh, ominous that there's no mention of angels or covenant, or she says later that all the words of covenant were taken out. So they don't even use the word covenant anymore, which I think is fascinating. Um, she talks about the, the angels aren't being mentioned. Well, why why would you want to not mention angels suddenly? Well, because it it, it points people to priestly activity. And your, your Messiah is now your high priest of Israel. So you don't want people understanding the role of your Messiah, and you want to diminish him and hide him. You don't want people learning about covenant. You don't want people learning about the priesthood. You want to, you want to tell them the, the law just showed up at Mount Sinai and was never around before then which Jubilees destroys, uh, same thing with Enoch. Um, and that's, you know, that these are the teachings of Judaism that was being, you know, codified stronger and stronger um, in the first century AD. And then at the appearance of Yeshua, like they had the Council of Gemnia, where they told people that believed in, they told Jews who believed in, in Yeshua, you can't come to synagogue anymore. So they created this stark dividing line in history, uh, carterizing Judaism to, we're, we're removing texts, that would give any anyone an understanding of the message of, of Yeshua and why is your high priest of Israel, and we're going to exclude you from our fellowship. So that means we're removing Christians at the time away from hearing the actual Torah being read so they can have their foundational understanding. So this is why you would start to see in the second and third century, you have people like Origen who's, who's doing the same argument that we're doing tonight saying, Hey, uh, well, I don't know why they didn't include. I I can have some theories and speculations why the Jews didn't include Enoch in their canon, but it's 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 valid. Like he's he's essentially saying that I'm obviously paraphrasing, but so yeah, I apologize. I'm trying to talk too much. I'm just uh, it's oh, an exciting know, topic. I, I came on here to learn from you, sir. I, I <laughs> it's all right. I, mean, I am thankful for the the work you've done on the Book of Enoch. I have found um, your resources to be of great benefit to me this last week since I, I found you i've been going over your stuff and uh and i'm thankful let me say that i literally thanked yahweh for you the kingdom needs you and uh, i'm thankful that you're here and i'm thankful for what you do and the, the anointing that is on you to do it I appreciate it, sir. I, I yes, felt a uh, strong uh, anointing on you uh, the moment that I saw your video, and um, not not just because I think you're a strong preacher, but because um, I could clearly see there was a, a spirit of humility that was leading you into, you know, in in the face of opposition, realizing okay, we need to, we need to dig here. There's something here, you know, 
And uh, that to me has always been um, a trait that I feel like is the body needs more and more because the rest of people I see are just in theologically intimidated into either silence or to tote in the tote in the traditional mainstream narratives, you know, and not that we want to throw out tradition altogether. We understand there's some, depending on the, the context, there's some significance to uh, the, the power and practice of certain traditions. But if those traditions com completely contradict the, the plainly written words in scripture, well, then I'm not going to be bound to that tradition. Right. Um, so we have to break free. Uh, the Mark seven teaches us. You don't reject the word to hold to your traditions. You reject the traditions to hold to the word. So, yeah. Yes. And so in the same way that, we see the the law of God. I mean, I mean, it's right there in chapter four, talking about God gives commandment to all of creation, even though it's using in chapter four, first Enoch, it's using some uh, um, analogies or some comparisons to the trees in the summertime and the, you know things like that. Uh, it seems like a simplistic uh, little um, description of creation, but it's, but it starts out by saying, "These all obey the commandments of Yahweh, but yet the unrighteous are not obeying my commandments." So from the get go, it's showing you like. God's law has been here since day one. He he is okay. Yahweh. He changes not, you know? And so it, it baffles me in the modern day for people that, especially to observant people, to think that it, it's it's only baffling when I consider when I assume that they've done their due diligence to read the book. Um, and that's the first layer. And then when I get back, I have to remind myself, okay, not everybody actually reads before they talk about a subject. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So once I get past that first layer of realization, then I step into that second deeper layer, which sometimes, you know, good hearted people that have studied the Bible for a long time in certain topics, they just lean on the traditional interpretation or what they were taught at seminary and they don't right. question it. I've had those gentlemen on my, on my channel. We we've have interesting conversations about it, you know, and, uh, sometimes they get lively and sometimes they stay peaceful, but ultimately they uh, it, it's sometimes it has to be, has to be done. I had to do that with myself because, you know, the things that I was taught about Genesis six and at Bible school, when they talked about, you know, the, the two theories about whether it's truly angels that rebelled or whether it was the sons of Seth. Sons of Seth right. So I heard that when I was at Bible college and I thought to myself, even as a young man in my early twenties, I thought, but the, but the text says angels. And, and I looked up the Hebrew. I was like, all right, well, let me be make sure maybe there's a translation issue. And I'm like, okay, but the, the, it says, it says, but Elohim. That's it. It seems it translates as a Hebrew word for angels. And then, Oh, I look in a cross reference and I see, Oh, it's also used in Job chapter one and two, when the angels presented themselves to God and Satan came with them. I'm like, that doesn't seem like the sons of Seth to me. Yeah, exactly. But, going back to Enoch, they can make that argument and convince most people as long as they can keep most people from not reading the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch pulls the veil back and you see there's no way these are the sons of Seth doing this. It, it, no way at all. There's, it's impossible. Just in the, the gr grammar of the text itself, it, it, would, it wouldn't make sense um, grammatically for you to say, call suddenly other humans sons of God and then other ones regular men in the same text and then right. make a big deal about them taking wives, which would be a normal thing amongst mankind for them to take wives. Right. Um, and especially in the patriarchal view of the old Testament to where the, the man was the leader of the household for, for theology. So 
if you're trying to impose this idea of the sons of Seth and how they took daughters of men because they were righteous and the daughters of men was a reference to Cain's unrighteous line. Well, for one, that's a huge assumption that everyone in Cain's line was suddenly unrighteous and reprobate. I mean, right. to, to my understanding, Cain himself is pleading after he sinned, he's pleading for mercy and he's pleading against the, the to be protected from the Torah. And what I mean by that is, remember what Cain says? He's like, if anyone finds me, they're going to kill me. Right. Well, that's, that's the law of the blood avenger. Yes. So like he knows. Eternal Torah. Yeah. He, he knows. There's like, even though, and it doesn't tell us everyone who had been born at that time when this event happened, but right. he knows whoever's going to be born next. They're all coming from Adam. They're all related to him. They all qualify to be the blood avenger, to take, to avenge Cain's, Abel's blood. Like he will be a hunted man. So, <laughs> and since there's only one priest at the time, which I, I infer that it's Adam um, because of the way Jubilees describes him and because of the Genesis 4 account, then that means he can't go to the city of refuge and hang out with with Adam because that's where all the kid, the blood Avengers would be. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. yes. So that's why he has to be a wanderer on the earth because the Torah. So like it's, but see, even in that Yahweh shows him mercy and makes sure that that law is not of judgment is not carried out on him so that he can have uh, progeny and offspring. So there's just, uh, there's so much there. There's so much beauty in the scriptures that if we just read it and, and just believe what it says and take those definitions, of those words and start applying it forward, you start to see that the book of Enoch was not only a vital resource to um, people during the days of the scriptures, but um, it's a it's a profound history that people need to understand, especially for the last days, because I you can tell me what you think, Pastor, but I think that with everything they're doing in the modern day with transhumanism, they're trying to bring giants back. What do you think about that? I agree 100%. I think that, again, that's another thing that makes the book of Enoch so uh, vital is understanding that DNA can be altered, understanding that hybrids can be created. And the uh, as it was in the days of Noah, well, in the days of Noah, they were these hybrid creatures roaming the earth. And uh, I, I think that uh, in the last days, it's not just going to be the unrighteousness we're used to seeing, but I think in the last days, we're going to see a rise of these hybrid beings as well. I, I actually think, and this is my speculation, I, I can't prove it from the Greek, but I, I speculate that in Revelation 19, when it talks about you should return on the white horse and he's fighting the armies of the beast. And, uh, and it says in there, as it's listing off multiple things, it says in the mighty men. And so I think that's what it's referencing is, is a return of, of Nephilim, of a return the, of giants. The men of renown. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Because that is that, that word in the, is called gibberim in the, in the Hebrew in, in the old Testament. And so I think that that it would translate it as mighty men. Um, and it was commonly used. I know it's used in other places, like for some of David's bodyguards, but it's also commonly used for referencing the, the Nephilim or the giants in the Old Testament. So, um, but ultimately, I, it, it's a fascinating thing because if you understand, like, to me, and and you you can, I'm not sure how how much of our content that you've witnessed or that you've had a chance to to listen to, but um, you're probably going to see it in that book that I that I sent you, the PDF of the First Enoch book, as you get further into it, all the color coding where um, you're probably going to see uh, I color-coded the, the Nephilim in gray, and then I color-coded um, 
uh, Apollyon and Babylon and the, the, the mechanism of that in red. And I, I explained in the commentary why I did that. But because, as you know, the, the prophecy in the book of First Enoch goes all the way up to the day of the Lord or the, um, the coming of the Messiah. So there's a lot of events that are happening through there. But the Azazel, so this is what I we teach on our channel about the first book of First Enoch. And it's okay if other people disagree with us. This is just our understanding when we put all the context together. So Azazel was one of the rebellious watchers, along with uh, Samuel and those other guys of the, the 200 that came down in the days of Jared. And in chapter 9 and 10 in First Enoch, you see that there's different judgments handed out to Azazel versus all the rest of the watchers who took wives. He's dealt so with his, first. He is. He's dealt with first. And his judgment is a little different compared to the other guys that were sent to Tartarus. And it's almost as if he didn't take a wife. He got a different judgment. But he clearly, according to chapter six and seven, was teaching mankind all kinds of things about weaponry and, you know, and, uh, you know, the antimony of for women to create seduction. And he was clearly teaching corruption in vast different ways uh, to mankind. He's clearly guilty. I mean, chapter nine says ascribe all sin to Azazel. So we're, we're not giving him a pass at all. I, I personally think he's the leftover rebellious watcher that we now call the dragon and Satan today. Right. What do you think about that? I agree. Um, and I agree because I wouldn't have known how to respond to that a few weeks ago, but I agree because in studying the book of Enoch again, uh, after you read in Enoch six about the rebellion, about them taking wives and then, you know, men begin to cry out and then the angels go to Yahweh with their complaint and Yahweh begins to deal with it. He doesn't go after Shemyaza first. He goes after uh, Azazel first. And uh, that, that lifts him to a, um, a different platform, I think, than the others. And so, yes, sir, I, I, I agree with you that he is the dragon. He is the one we call uh, Satan. Um, he's a different being altogether than, than Simyaza and, and the, the ones that went to Mount Hermon. Yes, I agree. And I think it's... Um, see if I can go to this chapter real quick. Um, it, it, to me, it seems very synonymous with revelation 20. Uh, what we see here, I think it's in Enoch, uh, 54. I'm going to put this on screen for us real quick. So right here in Enoch 54, where it says, and I looked and turned to another part of the earth and saw there a deep valley with burning fire. And they brought the kings and the mighty and began to cast them into this deep valley. And there my eyes saw how they made these, their instruments, iron chains of immeasurable weight. And I asked the angel of peace who went with me saying, for whom are these chains being prepared? And he said unto me, these are being prepared for the hosts of Azazel. Now for the, the audience out there listening, that, that means armies of Azazel. Um, Jubilees tells us his armies were these unclean spirits that were put under his control. And so just like Azazel is a spiritual creature he's not made of the dirt of the earth he's like he's an angel he's a spirit being but yet clearly whatever these chains are made of they can actually wrap him up and hold him up Correct. so in the same like manner they would be able to wrap up and hold up the unclean spiritual beings that are his armies his hosts um 
And so that they may take them and cast them into the abyss of complete condemnation, and they shall cover their jaws and with rough stones, as the Lord of Spirits commanded. Michael and Gabriel, Raphael and Phanuel shall take hold of them on that great day and cast them on that day into the burning furnace, that the Lord of Spirits may take vengeance on them for their unrighteousness and becoming subject to Satan and leading astray those who dwell on the earth. So in the context here, the hosts of Azazel are those who became subject to Satan. So we have a correlation of Azazel being Satan and the unclean spirits being his his army force, his, right. his operatives. That's the way I read it. What say you, brother? I agree with you. Uh, I don't know that I'd ever connected it to, well, I do know. I have never connected it to Revelation 20, but um, I, uh, I think it was a, two, three weeks ago, we began to talk about who this, this character is that to him ascribe all sin that you know we find in um when, when you're looking at yom kippur uh, th this character being referenced there as well that um he is the leader of the armies uh, that's a great way of putting it he is yeah, and that it makes sense that revelation 13 would say that this is the dragon to whom all these people worship and look after you know and then he has the authority to give uh the authority to the first beast and the second beast and things like that so it's kind of a top-down authority flowing down from the dragon from azazel because he's the the one that's been here this whole time causing mischief and unrighteousness and deception and like revelation says uh, you know he who deceives the whole world revelation 12. It's this it's the dragon character is quite the adversary but at the same time um yeshua just said, you know, away from me, and he left. <laughs> so, so we've got an even greater conqueror, and that's why we're more than conquerors through Christ, right? Because he's our king who's coming back to wrap up this rebellious angel and say, look, that's enough when the appropriate time at the right time. And the book of Enoch is just completely full of, in different chapters and in different ways, describing the second coming of the Messiah. So to me, that's such a powerful thing. Um, obviously, if you reject Messiah, like first century Judaism did, you would want to get rid of the book of first Enoch because you don't want people, you don't want how, you don't want people realizing how relevant, uh, the book of first Enoch is to all the prophecies in Isaiah. And so this would have been a, you know, uh, an ongoing contentious argument in the first century amongst, amongst the Pharisees who are trying to get a quote unquote closed canon, which I love wow. what you said in your message. We were like, that's not a closed canon. They chose to close it. <laughs> right. So, that's a very subjective term. Um, so yeah, it'd make perfect sense in this ongoing discussion on, well, what books are we going to claim have authority and which ones don't? Well, as they see the, their Yeshua problem unfolding and people leaving Judaism to go to Yeshua, like Paul says in Galatians chapter one, he's like my former way of life in Judaism, you know, and now he's following Christ. And so I think people start to realize they the Jew, the Pharisees of that day would have realized, hey, we, we've we've got to lock down the information uh, in a way so it's harder for people to go after this Messiah because uh, they hated Messiah, you know. Well, you can't read the Gospels without realizing how much they hated him, and the, they recognized who he he was. They didn't hide him because they thought he wasn't the Messiah. They hid him because I think they knew he was, and they. Uh, you know, behold, the whole world has gone after him. The envy in them uh, made them do whatever they had to do to make him, uh, to, to cause people to no longer follow him. So, 
I think it was, do you remember the verse, uh, Pastor, is it either in John chapter 7 or John chapter 8, um, where the Pharisees are talking? I think Nicodemus is there too. And they're saying we've something must be done because if we don't if we don't do something, the whole everyone's going to believe in him. Yes, I think it's in John seven. I could be wrong, but I, I don't have your uh, recall. I'd have to get my e sword and find it. But I know the passage that you're talking about that um, the, the whole world's going to go after him, and um, they're willing to do whatever they got to do to discredit him. That's right. So we have even in the Gospels them sharing their evil motivation to somehow yes. suppress Messiah. And if that means post-resurrection, they got to suppress the testimony about him. Well, that's why they betrayed their fellow Jewish brethren who became Christians and turned them over to the Romans and excluded them from the synagogue and told the Romans they were an enemy of the state. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to get the ADL to shut our stream down here, but at the same time, I'm like, <laughs> there's this is the history that's there. It's written down for us to to learn. And and uh, a lot of people don't realize that the religious leaders of Judaism in the first century AD rejected Christ and persecuted his followers. Um, and this is, you know, Paul talks about it in Galatians, like people come in behind me, trying to be bewitch you guys, you know, and so like it's a it was an ongoing struggle. Um and we see it in in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter fourteen, maybe, where uh, um, you know the the Jews come in and, and stir up the people in that town, and they get Paul beat up, you know, Absolutely. getting thrown out of town. And you know, so, it wasn't enough that they run him out of their town; they followed him to the next town to stir the people up there. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Against him, so they were very militant in their resistance of uh, the Messiah and his message. So in, in like manner, we have literal writings from the Talmud and the Mishnah telling you that, you know, there's they decided at one point we're going to exclude certain sacred writings. So they even acknowledge they are sacred writings, right. but we're going to exclude them and tell people not to read them or they'll lose their salvation and won't be a part of covenant Israel uh, because we have to get people away from this message. And if, uh, just so happens this this particular book just emphatically talks about the Messiah that they rejected in their same generation. <laughs> So it's it's quite a book. Um, have you gotten into the parables section where it talks about like the history of the world and everyone's? It's like George Orwell's Animal Farm. Everybody's an, a type of animal, and it's a huge parable. I have read it a few times. I haven't studied it. the uh, The parables are intriguing to me, but I have not studied them enough to have an intelligent uh, uh, response to that, sir. Uh, it's okay. Well, when when you get there, it's pretty fascinating how it actually calls the Egyptians who persecute the Israelites and put them in oppression, uh, which leads to the Exodus. It calls them wolves. And that was a common name for the Egyptians to where they one of their gods they worshipped was a wolf, was Anubis. Right. He's, a, he's a jackal. He's a form of a desert wolf from ancient yes. Egypt. But um, that's it's interesting how like, in Greek mythology, the people that... Um, that one of their gods was an incarnation was a big wolf. And so it's fascinating to see that uh, there's these correlations in this prophecy, you know, from before the flood of even, even in parable form where people are, you know, uh, given this anthropomorphic nature of an animal um, in the storyline. I always thought that um, George Orwell kind of stole, like once I read the book of Enoch and I think about <laughs> animal farm, I was like, man, he stole that whole idea. Like, right. Cause I, I read that when I was in high school and I thought that was pretty fascinating idea to make everybody animals. 
but he just stole it from the book of Enoch. <laughs> Animal <laughs> form and Enoch. Uh, yeah. It's pretty, it's I'll pretty amazing. Those back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but ultimately um, I'm enthralled by the book, not just because uh, I'm trying to be biased, but because I've studied before I read it, I've been studying the scriptures uh, diligently. I jokingly call myself a word nerd because I just, you know, I, I geek out on the Bible. I love it. I think it's amazing. I think it's, it's literally something we can go out every day and we can test it all the claims yes. within it for how to behave, how to respond to people, how to overcome transgressions, how to, how to consider God in our heart and life every day. It's like, I can go test that every single day. It's like a, it's like an, an, a never ending game that I get to play where I, I get to walk in and practice the behavior of my creator. And when I mess up, he made his son, my advocate to atone for my sins. Yes, sir. You know, and I get to enjoy knowing that, that I don't have to worry about that relationship being broken that I can, that, you know, his mercies are new every morning. Right. Yes. So I'm like, okay, okay. So he's a wonderful, loving God. And he, he gave me his wonderful word to his prophets. I get to go practice this every day and sometimes practicing it is really difficult, but uh, he's never going to take me out of the game. He's he, even though I'm making mistakes, I got two errors and it's only the second inning. I'm not getting pulled. Like no, he's leaving sure. me in the game. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love, I love the fact that we have that same consistent, concept as i was studying the bible that that we call our american canon today um fervently trying to understand it and then i run into the book of enoch and i start to see all those same behaviors and, and the same definitions of righteousness and wickedness being described in the book of enoch and i'm like oh, wait a minute maybe my bible college was wrong maybe the law did not just show up for the first time at sinai and then i started digging deeper into genesis and exodus and i was like wait a minute there's it says in Exodus 18 that Moses is is solving people's problems, teaching them the statutes and laws of God. Yes. Like, where do you get that? Right, <laughs> right. So then I start I reading Book of Enoch, and I'm like, he, it says he's teaching them righteousness and wisdom about how to abide with the Creator. Like that is that a different standard somehow before the flood versus after the flood? I'm like, I, I, it would make it would make sense if it were, because then why? if it's a different standard, why that means he's punishing people based on a different standard and he's a hypocrite. Like, so like that seems pretty amazing to me that he would have the same standard of righteousness before the flood as after the flood. Right. And then of course you get deeper into, uh, Oh, that's how Noah knew what were unclean and what were clean animals. Uh, that's what I started to say. You got Noah, not only knowing the difference between clean and unclean, but he also knew, how to count the days and the months and the years That's right. the calendar. All of that is in place before the flood. That's right. Yeah. And the, the, that's another thing that is the new moons, which I think is fascinating because um, I, I love Isaiah. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And in Isaiah 66, it talks about um, all the nations coming before the Lord to keep the Sabbaths and the new moons and the feasts. Same thing in Ezekiel chapter 45. It says that also. And I was like, what are these new moons? Right. Well, Judaism tells me it's once ever, it's the first of the month and it's it's a priestly thing. But I read in Jubilees and Enoch that, oh man, maybe it's actually the, the quarterly changings of the seasons every 91 days. And that it's a unique thing, and that Noah kept them. And this is literally signified different markers throughout the flood, the year of the flood. And and so that's why I also am a huge fan of Jubilees. Um, because in accordance with with that observation of the calendar. Um, I, I see that there's an amazing amount of coordination to life and creation. We're not on some ball spinning randomly 
thinking that in 4,000 years, the North Star is going to be something different because we're in a different part of the galaxy and hopefully we don't get hit by an asteroid. And, and if that doesn't happen within 200,000 years, then the sun's going to go supernova and we're all just going to melt. Like the, the, the current model of cosmology that's taught to us in public schools is a, is it steals our hope and is literally a cosmology from ancient India and ancient Egypt. And it's all centered around trusting their word to save us from impending death. Right. It is philosophically based. And obviously since it's against the law of God, it's, it's unscriptural, but it's philosophically based to, to derive the mind towards dependency on the authority. And that's where they come in and step in and say, well, you know, uh, uh, it's, we don't understand what started all life everywhere, but we theorize that probably there'll be our, our human progenitors from the past will probably come back and visit us at some point. Like this is the current narrative they're, they're pushing in mainstream science today. Yes. Yeah. It's called called pan sperm, which they think an alien is going to show up. He's just going to be a version from us from thousands of years ago. Who's highly evolved and advanced. And that's how he's able to space travel. And so he's going to come back and help us cure all of our problems and stop global warming and all that nonsense. So like, this is where, you know, I, I would just love, I'm just going to be so ecstatic for, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm going to get my, I'm sorry. I just get excited. I'm trying to get my words together. It It makes perfect sense. When we see in the, in revelation, when, when the son of man is coming and the people are freaking out, the Kings of the earth are trying to battle him. Everyone's trying to scatter if they're not trying to fight him. And it's a, it's an amazing day. Uh, The saints are protected and spared the resurrected. And you see that it's, reprimanding people for not just their idolatry, their sorcery, their, their human trafficking, all that, but also their theft. And when I look at modern day policy, when they try to talk about imposing taxation on the world for, for global climate change, which is fabricated by a consensus of certain data points and science that's all subjective and bias. And I read books like Enoch that explain to me the windows of heaven and how it controls the weather. And I'm like, he's going to come back and be like, guys, Here's the crew of angels that control the entire weather of the earth. And you guys stole from mankind's efforts. You robbed men of their labor and oppressed them on unrighteousness to take their money and go spend it on who knows what, probably building giants, you know, probably trying to figure out how to genetically mutate people to make giants come back. I don't know what they're spending that that billions of dollars. And that makes sense. Yes, sir. They're doing something right. So uh, just imagine the day. So there's, there's a moment. The reason I'm saying all this is there's a moment first Enoch. I want to say it's in chapter 40, but I could be wrong. It's the, the exact citation slipped me right now, but it talks about um, the, the son of man on his throne and people coming forth for right for judgment. And the way it's described, you know, and I, I could be wrong, but this is the way it reads to me and the way that the scene is being described is that the kingdoms here, the throne of the son of man is on the earth. The, the nations are being brought forth for judgment to him. But the resurrected saints are there witnessing all this. So all those people that were repressed by Satan and all of his minions and all the kings of the earth that aligned with him, that that robbed them, that oppressed them, that stole their land, that robbed their work and their effort and value, deceived them into different things. Those people that are resurrected, they get to watch, physically watch. These guys have to step before Yeshua and get judged. Talk about getting honored. Talk about getting your... Getting, getting that small piece of satisfaction of like the righteous judge is dealing with the unrighteous and I watched it happen. And so going forth into eternity, I don't have to wonder anymore. 
if I'm serving a righteous king. I don't have to wonder what became of those people and just trust that he took care of them or that the angels took them off to a part of the creation and took care of them and we didn't get to see it. No, we get to watch them be thrown in the lake of fire. Yes. Like that's that's amazing. And I'm not trying to say it sound, you know, vindictive or sadistic. I'm just meaning like that's a natural inclination that is put into the heart of man that wants justice. You 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 want to see recompense for injustice. And I think we'll get to see it my personally. Um it it is on the inside of us of whether it even in a movie, you don't want to see the bad guy win. You want to see the good guy win. And so it's in us that justice has to be uh, has to be done. And and our Elohim is a righteous judge. So I, I agree yeah. with you hundred percent, sir. Well, I, sir, I really appreciate it. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I do want to thank you for listening to me talk. I didn't mean to talk so much. I, um, but, uh, you already gave an incredible sermon on this book and, um, I just wanted to encourage you to say, um, it's just the beginning. You're going to get even more flack from this book. Um, I, I did debates on this book. I, we've get we get letters from people telling us that we're heretics and in sin because we read and talk about this book. And um, we get even though, as you've heard tonight, it it only it only leads me to magnify my Messiah and how amazing the Father and the Son are, and how they're going to clean up all the problems we see. It is promised, and it's everywhere in the Book of Enoch. For some people, that doesn't matter. The moment they hear the words Enoch, they think. They think apocrypha, pseudepigraphal, like it's a horrible book. It can't be. It's not in the canon. I had a professor of theology on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's a professor in Tennessee. And um, I asked him at one point because the, the canonization concept came up. And I asked him, I said, so that Enoch and Jubilees wasn't put in the canon. And he's like, no, they weren't put in the canon. They're not They're not a part of the holy inspired scripture put in canon. I was like, okay, well, do you know that there's been different canons throughout time? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah. I said, so like in the second century, they chose a bunch of books. And then about hundred years later, they had a different canonization council and they chose different books. <laughs> and, they, and I was like, so which one was inspired scripture? Or is it just that these are, these are collections of books decreed, decreed upon by men and not God. Right. So then, sir, if you haven't already uh, found um, on our channel, I do uh, a, a show called honor of Kings and we've done three seasons. And we look at the quote unquote apocryphal and deuterocanonical books um, that have been either used to be in our canon or have been removed or were in other canons throughout time. And uh, you can go to the playlists on my channel and go to Honor Kings if you ever have some free time or just put it on the background while you work. And me and a buddy, Ken Heidebrecht from a different channel, hanging on his words. Uh, we go through these books with a fine tooth comb and we try to line up what it claims with the canon of 66 and see if there's theological continuity to see if it passes the Deuteronomy 13 test. Okay, right. So that's our baseline. And, and then if it does, okay, well, what else is it? Is, does the history match up? Does the, the people, places, and events? Does the theology uh, is teaching about the resurrection match up? So uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. We go over Enoch. We did probably 14 videos on Enoch, and we did several on Jubilees, several on Testament to All Patriarchs. Uh, we did Baruch, Apocalypse of Baruch, uh, and we're still going. We're, we're going to do season four uh, pretty soon. So as soon as we get our schedules to align and have time. But I think you might really enjoy it. Uh, give you some I'll some fun stuff to study. Yep. But I really anything that you'd like to talk about before we go. I I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, no, not in particular. I I do have kind of a little check. You know, when I was talking about 
the scribes and the Pharisees and how, uh, what they did. I don't want anybody to twist my words and think that I was being anti-Semitic because I'm not, because I know who my Messiah is. I know who the disciples are. Uh, Just because I'm going after the Jewish leadership doesn't mean I'm going after the Jewish people. Same way when I get into the church fathers, I understand some of them love the Messiah, but there are some of them when you get into, um, they were deceived and deceiving. So uh, that's right. That doesn't make me against all church fathers, and it doesn't make me against the Jewish people because I didn't like what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. So I'd just like to clarify that point before we close. I didn't take you wrong on it. I think you're right. Yeah. And Um, I'm actually about to do a a video pretty soon on uh, Maimonides, uh, commonly called Rambam, and and how he created the 13 required beliefs of Judaism. And in that cultural creation that he made that it was adopted by all jewish scholars afterwards that became really codified as their core beliefs of judaism they include their cultural heritage as a part of that so it it can be very misleading to people listening when you say well pharisees of judaism created the that you know did some bad things they immediately get offended thinking oh you're t- you're talking about my heritage my people and you're like no no not we're just talking about specific leaders at a specific point in time that made some bad decisions that we disagree with you as a people in a culture, you're fine. <laughs> Go, right. That's fine. Absolutely. Come, come have shot with me if you want to. But like, it's, it's yeah. Unfortunately, though, that is the cultural knee jerk in our society. Is they're thinking if you're attacking Judaism, you must be attacking Jews, and that but is because they've lumped them together as a people. They've lumped them together, you know. Right. And uh, so I, I understand. I appreciate you bringing that up. So to clarify for anybody watching, yeah. I uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and uh all the resources you've put out there are phenomenal and i am going to use them so thank you sure. very much Sean. um yes sir i will uh um if you like tell me what you think once you have more time to review uh, our first enoch contextual study guide and if you want um you know more uh, of that flavor because again, as you you probably have lots of commentaries and lexicons and concordances and study guides of different types you've come across over the years, but hopefully you'll start to see we tried to do a little bit different thing with that, where it's it's not simply just defining all the words and showing all the other places those words are used in other passages. We try to line up context, and that's something I've never seen anybody do. So I, I use all the different free available tools online for cross-referencing scripture. And it's usually more of like a cross-referencing of keywords in that passage to those words used in another passage, right? But the, but the context could be completely different but between the two passages being referenced, you know? I looked at that PDF you sent me, and uh, after looking at it, I I told someone that the that that was a Ruach HaKadosh-inspired thing to do, to color code the context the way you did. I've never seen it done. Um, it is going to help me, and I know it's going to help countless others when they're studying the Scriptures. Now, now for anyone listening out there, if you've already bought the Book of Enoch you, and you've been studying it, or at least our, our color-coded study guide, you probably noticed that some of the choices I made because I had to make a decision because some of the passages, you know, that it, it, it's talking about the first resurrection, but it's also talking about covenants because that is the promise of the first, you know, the covenant is to get resurrected. And it's also talking about the day of the Lord because that's the day when you do get resurrected. So like I didn't, I couldn't put all three colors 
on the same, I had to make a decision which color I was going to choose, you know, and then put the correlating verses to, to highlight that. So you're probably noticing as you're reading the text, wait, it's talking about a whole bunch of different things in here, but that's, that's just how jam packed of goodness it is within these types of books that I had to make a decision on just one cut, co one context theme. But if you like it, sir, let me know. And uh, if you do, I'll send you um, the rest of the PDFs I've completed from other books. I've done Galatians, Romans, uh, Titus, uh, Jonah, Ezra. Um, I'm work. I'm about to release Tobit, Testament of Levi, Mark, and wow. Revelation. And so yes, Revelation sir. is going to be a fun one because uh, Revelation is. I'm doing the the regular book uh, first. So like in the same in the same collection of Revelation book, I'm going to do. I'm going to repeat Revelation. So it's going to be one time all the way through as we see it in the Bible with all the color coding and supporting scriptures and commentary. And then I'm going to do a second revelation that's all chronologically laid out. To, uh, at least as I understand it, so that it, it you know can give people further insight into why I color coded things in certain ways and why how I see these events unfolding in a chronological manner. Wow. So that's it's also going to be correlating with uh, this show that we do on our channel called 42 Series, where we're, we're going over all the events leading up to the return of Messiah throughout prophecy and eschatology. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Yes, thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah. I'd be glad to get those to you and you can, you can check them out and Lord willing, I'll be able to have all the books done, uh, in the scriptures that, uh, I would love to have them done as soon as possible, but I've got a lot of other projects I'm working on simultaneously. So it's <laughs> taken me some time, but, yeah. uh, uh, but yeah, I'd love to have, once I have those done and completed, it'll be, you know, like a big thick color coded Bible of all the books and, and, uh, much smaller print, obviously these to everyone watching, this is a six by nine. And so this, this print is much bigger, but obviously if I'm going to put all the books from the Bible with this style, it's going to be like typical Bible text where it's smaller and the pages are thinner and different type of paper and all that stuff. So, so yeah, we're, we're trying to create resources. That's our heart. We want people to understand the scriptures in context because we feel like it weeds through all the nonsense and all the different denominational leanings and interpretations that cause people to be so confused. I mean, that was my story growing up in church. My father and granddad was a pastor. And then I grew up in church all my life and realized like even the people like I go to at the, in the pews next to me don't understand the Bible. And I would talk to pastors in between services um, and they would, if they understood what I was trying to ask them, they would go to their denominational teaching from what they were taught in their seminary, you know? Right. And so and I don't fault them for it because that's the way they were trained. But at the same time, I still left very, very confused on because their interpretation to me didn't line up with some other part of the book, you know, and I didn't want to bring that to their attention because I didn't want to be disrespectful. Um, but it, it, this is what led me down this path of realizing there's got to be a different hermeneutic to this. And what if it's just as simple as looking up the definitions of these words and keeping them in context? It's what if it's simple. just, I mean, what if it's just as simple as the way they taught us to read in second grade? <laughs> so, but for some weird reason, pastor, that doesn't happen when it comes to the Bible at church. People just take a couple of verses and cherry pluck them and then run off in all these theories about interpretation. It's just, it baffled me all my life. And I was like, we're not, why do we use a different way of reading when it comes to the Bible than we do every other thing in life? Let's just take it slow. Let's just, I had this track coach in school. Uh, he was a wonderful track coach. His name was coach Naylor. And, uh, he would always, uh, he would always tell me, Griffin, you just need to abide by the kiss principle. You got to keep it simple, stupid. 
Right. And that's what he, he would just tell me all the time. Just keep it simple, stupid. So I try to do that with, let's just define our terms. Let's look for the context and let's see what happens. Lo and behold, the Bible's not that difficult to understand. Um, as you as you already uh, announced and talked about, sometimes that's going to cause you to run into some interesting topics like the creation model, cosmology of right. do you do you believe what it says or not? You know, um, if I can believe in talking donkeys and floating axe heads and all of Israel being resurrected, if I can believe in my Messiah's resurrection, if I can believe in these things, I, I can believe He created a, a closed environment for you to a live in. It's massive, and, yeah. It's not that too hard. It's not big of a stretch for me to believe. So I, I believe I've, I serve an amazing creator that can do all these things he says. And uh, and the whole point of this is so that he can bring his house down to us later. So to me, that's a, that's a story. That's a promise of, of, of a religion that no other religion has on the earth, is that the creator wants to come down and commune with us. Do you, do you know, in ancient Hinduism and ancient uh, Greek theology and, and ancient you know, Egyptian theology and, and all the gods lived in the sky and wanted to keep away from the regular people. And only through, you know, the luck of the draw could you transcend and get to the area of the gods if you were good. And if not, you were punished, you know, in some sort of reanimating cycle or or have, have being constantly tortured in the underworld like the Egyptians taught, you know. So, like, the, I serve an amazing creator that says he wants to come down to me at the end of the story. He's bringing the city down. Yes, sir. So it gets me all jazzed up. Thank you so much, sir. I'll let you go. Um, is there anything like you, you guys... Anything you want to say other than shout out your channel? Um, everybody go subscribe to his channel. It's in the video description below. And uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word, sir. Uh, Sean, I, I am glad that I met you. It's a divine appointment, I believe. And uh, I, I can't express to you how much I respect you. And I'm thankful for the work you do. And uh, what an honor it's been to be able to sit sit with you tonight. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, it was an honor to talk to you as well. And we hope to have you on again in the future if you like. We often do different panels on this channel where I have multiple pastors on or multiple different uh, YouTube creators, and we come and talk about the Bible and share our thoughts and opinions. And so I'd love to have you on for one of those in the future if you're, uh, if you're available. I would love it. Thank you. Yeah, it's like a like our modern day council in Nicaea, except we don't start hitting each other when we get when we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. Well, All, right. You, sir. All right, sir. I want I appreciate you. I hope you have a wonderful night. You too. Good night. Okay, everyone. That was um Pastor Steve Martin from the Assembly of Yahweh in Northern Alabama. So I hope that uh I hope that, that was a blessing to you guys. Um I appreciate everybody being here in the live chat and looks like there were no no upheavals or grand fighting in the chat, so that's always good. But uh, as you saw tonight, this is just this is just a, a small taste of what is happening on a large scale. Um, that gentleman has uh, his own congregation, and over time, uh, I believe in one of his messages, he talked about being a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So that means um, he was part of a very long standing tradition in the United States of a specific type of doctrine. And since then he's moved away into becoming Torah observant and realizing the applicability of the law for discipleship of believers. And then he's now he's coming into other topics that he's realizing the Bible has been saying this the whole time. And that's always been our challenge to everyone listening is like, are we going to believe the Bible or are we going to believe some men running around claiming they know it better than us? I mean, we all can read. 
It's the benefit of being in this, this type of first world society. We can all read. We can, and these words have definitions in them. The Bible is not a mystery. You can understand what the creator is trying to communicate to you and you don't have to be confused. And so even pastors are waking up all across the, the earth. Like we've talked about the, uh, what we feel is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 13 prophecy of people calling to mind the commandments from everywhere under the heaven, they've been scattered. And that's been happening. He's a, he's another living example of that as well with this congregation, but they're also waking up to everything else in the Bible too. It's amazing. It's amazing. So hopefully this was a joy for you guys to watch and, and listen to tonight. If you enjoyed what we did here, hit that thumbs up. Um, let's go check the poll. Let's see what everyone here at the end. Let's see what everyone did with the poll in the live chat tonight. Okay. So it says, so it looks like we have, so I asked everyone, do you think first Enoch, do you find, I have to typo, my bad guys. Um, do you think first Enoch is inspired scripture? Yes. No, haven't read it. Need to study it out more. So we got 81% said yes. 2% said no. Where was your mind swayed at all tonight from the things we talked about? Uh, 4% says haven't read it. It'll bless you. Check it out when you have time. And 13% is undecided, basically saying they need to study it out more. That's fair. Okay, keep studying. That's fine. And as always, though, we, we like to let people know, hey, even if you even if you decide you don't like the book, that's fine. We still consider your brother in the faith. We still think that um, you, you can be a part of the family of God. We still think that there's plenty of information in the modern edited canon of 66 that we do have that, that can lead you to righteousness, lead you to salvation in Christ, lead you to a good understanding of theology and of eschatology. Um, this is where I learned about the gospel of the kingdom of God that Yeshua preached was from the modern canon of 66. Um, it wasn't from Jubilees or Enoch. It was from me going through Isaiah and Nahum and Zechariah and Ezekiel and all these chapters that talked about the, the day of the Lord. And then I was still like, wait a minute, she was talking about the gospel of the kingdom. That happens on the day of the Lord. That's when the kingdom comes down. Right. So I learned all that from the, the can of 66. And that's what how we started our channel was to make sure people were being getting some exposure to the gospel of the kingdom. And so, um, you know, I just hopefully. Um, you understand that if you don't are yet undecided about some of these books that were left out intentionally left out these sacred writings that uh pharisee judaism decided to leave out at some point if um if you're still on the fence about it and still studying it out we still love you you're still awesome it's okay just keep studying it you know and if you uh you know just at the same time remember that i claim i have studied it and uh i've i got the proof in the pudding i literally published my studies so you're welcome to check that out if you want. That's in the video description below. It's the it's the book you see here. You can order from Amazon. You can also get access to the PDF version if you like. Um, without what if you don't want the book, but you you want access to the PDF version, you can download that um, uh, the the study guide version on our Patreon. It's a part of the family tier. It's only twenty dollars. So. Um, and you can download all the other books we've completed and we'll be completing in the future as we release them on the Patreon for the family tier. It's a part of our contextual study guide. So you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. We're not going to do any Q&A tonight. We did that yesterday and uh, I got to go eat dinner. My wife's got some beautiful smells going in there. So thank you for being here, everyone. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, looks like I'll run Boston Bear. How you doing, brother? He said, thank you for being a word nerd, for teaching the way you do. This is all critical information. 
We're lifting you and Lindsay up often. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, guys. Y'all have a great night. We hope to see you again next time. Don't forget, download that Kenwood Context app.